Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for ACAMS, the world's largest membership organization for anti-financial crime professionals. In this episode, I talk with Joby Carpenter, my colleague here at ACAMS and a subject matter expert on crypto assets and illicit finance. Jody comes by his expertise, honestly, after 18 years in strategic policymaking positions, critical thinking, threat, and risk analysis roles across the UK government. Prior to joining ACAMS, Joby was responsible for the management of the Financial Conduct Authority's strategic assessment team. Joby and I discuss what he calls the recent contagion in crypto assets that's caused their value to plummet, and he argues that the collapse will actually lead to a flight to quality with VASPs and other digital asset providers surviving by ultimately embracing regulation and living within the rules. I hope you find the podcast informative and that you'll subscribe to Financial Crime Matters, either on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Here we go. Well, it is a pleasure for me today to be here with my colleague, Joby Carpenter. Joby is the ACAMS Global SME for Crypto Assets and Illicit Finance. And he comes by that very honestly, being the subject matter expert that he is, uh, after 18 years of experience and expertise in strategic policy making in the UK government, intelligence, and regulatory community. Particularly uh, in his previous role to joining ACAMS, Joby was responsible for the management of the Financial Conduct Authority's strategic assessment team. Joby, great to have you. Thank you, Kieran. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. I spent, as you said, about the best part of 18 years avoiding talking openly about what I do. So I'm enjoying the opportunity to do it now. Well, then let's go on that note. And let me ask you, kind of an incredible year in cryptocurrency and in crypto assets in general and developments with NFTs and everything. And I don't want to go too far afield, but with all the collapse of the price of certainly the very visible cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin and Ethereum, and with the failure of several VASPs, particularly those that were trying to do stablecoin and everything, how do you see the state of the cryptocurrency world right now? You're absolutely spot on. It's been a real roller coaster since November last year. Collectively, crypto assets have lost almost $2 trillion in value, and Bitcoin itself is down approximately 70% on its high of last year. And you mentioned stablecoins there, the collapse of um, the algorithmic stablecoin Terra USD. It's led to a contagion across the sector with various firms going under, business models being found out as being entirely inappropriate for the nature of the intended purpose of those firms and other crypto asset platforms and offerings also being, I suppose, brought into doubt. I guess that ultimately is no bad thing. I think that lots of commentators are actually saying, you know, this could lead to a cleansing of the market, that the crypto winter could potentially result in what some people are calling a flight to quality. And as such, you know, we may begin to notice over the next period that certain crypto asset service providers are operating on a more stable basis, to coin a pun on stable coins. I think that 
we're likely to see an improvement in not just the functioning of crypto asset operators, but also the compliance and the uh, sticking to the rules, which, have, as we all know, hasn't always been crypto assets' greatest achievement. Well, that's kind of where I want to go next to uh, now that you've sort of laid out that it's been this tumultuous time for crypto. You know, I'm still very aware of the fact that a lot of VASPs are not quite playing by the rules. And so how do you see the current regulatory climate? You seem to suggest you think it's moving in the right direction, but I, you know, there's also lots of lobbying. Certainly we see this in the U.S. to limit oversight of crypto and put into perspective for me. Yeah, well, it's an industry that I think it's fair to say has a bit of an identity crisis, Kieran. And the reality is that that goes back to its formative years and white paper, which launched Bitcoin. The fundamentals behind it were this is a libertarian exercise whereby people will regain their freedom. They will not have to act through financial services middlemen or actors. And the entire intention was to decentralize the financial system and take away intermediaries from that system. I think the unfortunate consequences of that is that the industry has been slow to react and slow to respond to a regulatory desire and a policy desire to bring them in line with other financial services. And partly I understand that, you know, this is an industry that even if you go back to that white paper is only approximately 12 years old or something along those lines. And we've seen that the banking sector hasn't always necessarily responded well to regulation itself or to the imposition of financial crime requirements on it. I would say in terms of the regulatory environment, the regulators are still playing catch up when it comes to crypto. I think the nature of regulation and the emergence of new technologies mean that regulators are largely speaking on the back foot. And that's not an ideal situation for the regulator or for the crypto asset sector, as it leads to inevitably, I think, regulation by enforcement and using outdated or inappropriate regulatory provisions to supervise the sector. And we are at the stage now, I think, where people are trying to join those dots and try and move away from that slightly ineffective system. But given the nature of technology and and the speed with which things change, that's not always something which is um, particularly effective. It seems, though, to me that one of the problems that still exists is that there's a number of players out there that are practicing regulatory arbitrage. And I wondered if you could put into perspective, you know, regulatory arbitrage. And I mean, it's, it's something mentioned by FATF, just seeing that, you know, there's efforts by states in the U.S. to offer crypto a haven that seems threatening to regulation and oversight of crypto. I don't think it's an exaggeration. I think you've said this, right? How do you see, how will arbitrage be tackled, I guess, is where I'm going? And how do you see this issue? Yeah, I think regulatory arbitrage is a problem for the sector and it's not one that we have a complete solution to yet. I mean, we should, of course, acknowledge that arbitraging regulatory systems is not a new concept. This has gone on within financial services for many, many years. Crypto, though, I think, you know, has made a bit of a um, a standpoint in terms of it. And in many ways, some of the major players within the market, we all know who we're talking about, have been open about the fact that, you know, they will move between different jurisdictions in order effectively to kind of operate the type of systems they want to operate, provide particular services to retail and institutional 
investors and to, I mean, effectively get ahead of others in the marketplace who are playing by the rules. I think in terms of how do you deal with that, there are some really open questions about that. And I think we'll probably come on to some of those later. But it seems to me that if you really want to solve this problem, then there's have to be some pretty heavy strategic lifting by multilateral organisations like the FATF and potentially others, including the IMF or the World Bank, to ensure that actually actors who are trying to avoid their regulatory responsibilities by operating out of certain jurisdictions or offshore locations are brought back into the sector under the threat of certain types of punishment. Well, it's interesting you talked about regulators struggling to keep up, I think. I'm trying to think about what term you used exactly, but that leads to this other question that they're kind of trying to come to speed with how to do oversight of cryptocurrency. And then here comes NFTs. Talk a little bit about NFTs and what they mean for regulation and the cryptocurrency market. Of course. I mean, NFTs, non-fungible tokens, are, I suppose, at the at the real core of the debate about how do you regulate something which is ultimately a software protocol. Regulators haven't really had to confront this issue in any great substance until recently. And I think that something like non-fungible tokens and decentralized finance opportunities more generally are a real challenge for the industry. And if you look at something like NFTs, they are available through various retailers and dealerships online or through applications on mobile devices. Those firms aren't necessarily themselves regulated, although some of them might be for financial crime purposes or for particular market-based activity. However, the actual offering itself, the NFT, is unregulated right now. Now, as I understand it, the Financial Action Task Force intends to take some issue some regulatory guidance on non-fungible tokens and how domestic regulators should be actually confronting some of the issues faced that NFTs pose to the market. But will we ever be able to regulate a NFT in the same way that we regulate a bricks and mortar bank, an asset management firm or a hedge fund? I think it's unlikely. And I think this is really something which regulators and law enforcement feel uncomfortable about. And as a consequence, they are playing that regulation by catch up and they are using potentially legislation or regulatory provisions which were intended for other purposes. And, you know, we see that on an almost daily basis when it comes to things like using securities fraud laws in order to enforce um, insider dealing regulation on crypto firms, for instance. It isn't necessarily something which fits that particular box. And the travel rule is another really good example by the FATF. You know, they are effectively following the wire transfer regulations Is it right for the crypto industry? I think there's a lot of questions about that and debate within the industry. Well, it's interesting, too. There has just been this OFAC action, and you can fill me in on the details involving a mixer decentralized finance protocol, uh, if I'm using the right term, that basically means that North Korea was able to take illicit gains and try to disguise them and hide them and put them through this mixer that operates without any, uh, operates automatically, the decentralized finance model. And this seems like law enforcement must be, you know, what do you mean if there's no one responsible? And at the same time, this is where the decentralized finance protocols are moving, right? Put that in perspective. It's a really tricky 
issue for regulators and law enforcement to act upon. So you have something like tornado.cash, which has recently been sanctioned and designated by OFAC, with OFAC saying that any transactions which are monitored and observed through that particular mixing service then have to be reported. Well, the reality is, of course, that this is a decentralized protocol, which has effectively been established by certain individuals and then just put out into the market through open source platforms for people to uh, use as they see fit. And there are some legitimate reasons to use a mixing service. For instance, if you're trying to move around your own personal savings out of sight of potentially a malign government or um, somebody who's trying to seize your own assets. However, you're absolutely spot on. North Korea have exploited this technology. Iran have also used it in order to raise revenue. Here, we find ourselves in a classic dilemma that if you try to go by the rules and um, say, you know, we will report all of these um, transactions, it is very, very hard to do that. It's almost impossible to say, you know, we will capture every transaction through tornado.cash. The other side of the equation is that some crypto asset exchanges have no tolerance for something like tornado.cash. And the, the way that they can instill that low risk tolerance for something like that is through their KYC and CDD procedures, of course. So when they are onboarding customers, they are looking at people and saying, you know, there is a very low chance that these customers are going to be using mixing services for criminal purposes or to disperse monies for unknown reasons. So I veer between thinking that on one hand, the sector knows how to police these particular issues and the other whereby actually if you really kind of follow that through to its natural conclusion it is very very difficult for that to be properly implemented. So Joby you know we've talked about all of these decentralized finance protocols and the the creation of those as tools and the issues around them but you also on the positive side you recently did a webinar with law enforcement about SARS related to crypto and what could be gleaned by law enforcement by following the blockchain, et cetera. There's also this reality that in many ways, cryptocurrency can be much easier to trace than bulk cash and and other methods of laundering money. Tell me about that. Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Kieran, in terms of the functionality of the blockchain, in terms of tracing and interdicting criminal assets. I think if you'd have offered this solution to law enforcement and intelligence agencies 10 years ago and said, you know, the blockchain is immutable, it will allow you to track every single transaction from wallets of interest or concern and take those back to the very first day of the blockchain, they would have bitten your hand off. And, you know, I think that we've moved on a long way from early meetings between different law enforcement agencies where people were genuinely scratching their head about how they were going to ever seize or or potentially confiscate illicit funds through this invisible system of moving money around. But actually, the reality is that law enforcement have actually got themselves into a situation where they are able to retrieve tens of billion pounds worth of potentially criminal proceeds, which is great. So when we were talking to our law enforcement partners, 
partners the other day. They were making the point that actually crypto-based reporting and SARS is actually really, really helpful for them. You know, where crypto exchanges can point out interactions with bad actors, that is absolutely vital to criminal investigations. I think, you know, the, the, the sector is still learning about how to construct a narrative around that kind of SARS reporting and ensure that they can join the dots between different types of information to assist law enforcement investigations. But the reality is that we're still early days for kind of SARS reporting or STR reporting. And for me, there is more potential here than actually risk to the system because of the uh, nature of the technology and also the various technological solutions that crypto exchanges deploy. And in many cases, they are better, more up-to-date and less clunky than traditional financial services. That is a uh, very interesting. And I, it makes me talk about when you say, you know, this is still a, in process and uh, we're still learning. Uh, one of the things that's in process and much talked about is Web3. And I know you're going to do maybe even two panels or like a workshop and a panel or something in which you kind of address Web3 in the upcoming Las Vegas uh, conference. Tell me a little bit about, you know, in the context of the discussion that we've just had, what you're seeing Web3, what's the promise and the peril? Well, I mean, great question. Web3 is often presented as the future of the internet, but I think we're, we're still in very early days, so it remains to be seen exactly how that pans out. I think that some companies are already moving towards Web3 protocols, but other projects are still in that development stage. So for me, coming from, from the background I came from in terms of the UK government, I tend to view this through the prism of, you know, what are the potential impacts on ongoing law enforcement investigations and intelligence activity. And I think that on one hand, there are going to be uh, real issues around, well, actually, how do law enforcement organisations keep up with cyber criminals because as the technology gains momentum so will those criminals they'll be seeking to use it as an opportunity to exploit various weak points in the system whether it's on a technical or at a kind of social stroke user level and i think you know we've got to be conscious of the fact that um, smart contract hacks you know, targeting blockchain services such as rug pulls, for instance, promoting new projects and then disappearing with funds, they're already happening. So we are inevitably going to be seeing more of that. But I think the reality is that we have to balance that with potentially the opportunities presented by Web3. And I say that also from a law enforcement perspective, because it is based on the blockchain. And we know that that does offer law enforcement some advantages. I think though, there's a lot of horizon scanning to do here in terms of the way that web free pans out i think that users will be the owners of their own content identity will be proven by various private keys and data distributed amongst multiple users and since there's no central authority there's going to be things like decentralized autonomous organizations or or DAOs run on smart contracts and you know i think on one hand great because it takes away that kind of central platform and allows people to operate potentially in a way that they they wish to do so but on the other hand will organized crime try and exploit these opportunities of course they will just to kind of wrap up then i'm going to put out a question that um, i think about a lot and it may reflect my bias a little bit and i'll see what response you have 
And that is that I'm, I'm not rabidly anti, and I'm certainly have not really readily embraced crypto, and I'm kind of waiting and watching. But the question goes to where does crypto go? What, what's the value for crypto long term? And, and I'm, I'm asking that because I can't buy a loaf of bread with crypto very easily. It's supposed to be an alternative asset class for the wealthy is, is one approach, but it's moving fairly closely with the stock market, but worse uh, with stock markets all over the world. You know, it was supposed to do financial inclusion, and I'm not sure it's done that. So some final thoughts about crypto. Where is still the promise? You've got some pretty legitimate points there. I mean, here at ACAMS, we're technologically neutral when it comes to the blockchain and crypto assets as a offering. However, I'm not sure I completely buy into this whole argument that the blockchain is a solution without a problem. If you look at the sheer amounts of investment currently going into blockchain technology and Web3, I believe the current figure is somewhere over 75% of the largest banks in the world by assets under management and various private equity and venture capital firms are plowing hundreds of billions of dollars into this proprietary technology. They're building tokenized solutions to improve trade settlement, the buying and selling of equities and bonds and other commodities. And of course, there's the decentralized opportunities to break the monopoly on finance and allow others to potentially play into that space. I do think there are questions still to be asked about what benefits there are for retail customers against institutional organisations, and I think that's less clear. However, there are kind of a shift, and potentially the crypto winter is is facilitating that. So, for instance, large-scale brokerages are now intending to offer opportunities for its retail clients, and this is following in the path of the institution offerings that we're seeing from some very big exchanges and asset management firms as well. As for financial inclusion, I don't think we're quite there yet. You still require a computing device or mobile IT to access the blockchain and other crypto asset technology. And in some parts of the world, that's just not feasible right now. However, I'm ultimately fairly hopeful that the blockchain will be transformative in nature. I think it underpins the digital asset industry. And I fully expect it to have a impact both institutionally and eventually through the application of DeFi and Web3 and potentially the metaverse for individuals as well. Joby Carpenter, our ACAMS global subject matter expert on crypto assets and illicit finance. Thanks again. Thank you, Karen. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Joby Carpenter, ACAMS crypto assets and illicit finance subject matter expert. I hope you found the podcast interesting and will subscribe to Financial Crime Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud so that you'll receive an alert for each new podcast. Because financial crime matters to me and to you. See you next time.